Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Are you ready to get down some D&D? I know I am, and I am joined, as I am always joined, by the mighty, modern, and magnanimous Mad Wizard Merwin. What is up, Sean? I am home from PAX. Was it a good time? It was. It was It was actually kind of fun. Um, I rode there the nice seven-hour drive with Mr. Robert Everson and a friend of mine, Tom Pearson, who lives in Hamburg. And we had a good drive, had a good talk, and then had a good con. Nice, excellent. Well, what did you do? That was fun. Uh, just, just you know, general going, looking at things, hanging out. Uh, I had to do a little bit more writing than I had wanted to, uh, because of project stuff. Uh, so I would spend a couple hours at the con and then walk back to the hotel room and do a couple hours of writing and then turn around and go back. But, uh, you know, we can talk about packs as in one of our announcements if you so choose. Yeah, let's do that. I mean, let's move right into announcements. So uh, cool. tell me about PAX Unplugged. Yeah, so uh, one thing I did that was kind of fun, it's not D&D related, but it's RPG related, was played a game called Mission Accomplished, uh, which is an RPG designed by Jeff Stormer. Uh, he did a Kickstarter for it a couple months ago. The Kickstarter's over, unfortunately, uh, but the game was fun. It probably helped that I played with James Intracasso, Rudy Basso, Celeste Conowich, and Lisa Chen. Holy Lord. Yeah, that was, uh, usually I'm like one of the louder people at the table, uh, in terms of role playing. And I, I just couldn't keep up. They were just witty, funny, uh, great group to play with. So the, the game, it's about an hour long RPG where you play super spies who succeeded on your mission. Uh, the problem is some things went wrong and HR wants to hear why. <laughs> so so the game is a debriefing of the mission that you had just accomplished. So there are kind of play sets like you would have for Fiasco yeah. that detail the mission and the things, some elements in the mission. So you can use those uh, to decide what went right, what went wrong. And then you create your own character um, with like your name, uh, your specialty, one fact about you that's outside of... Uh, that's outside of the spy business. So basically role-playing things that other people can use. So the game master will take a list of things that both he creates, he or she creates, and that you as players create and puts them into a chronological order and then says, well, you know, the mission went well. It says here that so-and-so did this, you know, good job. But then you try to jump in and take credit for the things that went right and lay blame on others for the things that went wrong. I mean, it sounds like paranoia without the murdering right, of each other. Right, And And the other aspect of the game that's hilarious is it's super corporate. So, you know, one of the things that went wrong could be one agent forgot to use uh, the correct email signature on the email they sent out afterward. <laughs> or, that's you funny. know, you forgot to fill out Form 27B requisitioning, you know, the super blaster that you took. I mean, you didn't requisition that, that flamethrower correctly? Exactly, exactly. So my character was supposedly stole coffee from the break room. But my, my, my fact was I had narcolepsy. 
so I just said, well, I took the coffee not as coffee, but as to take the caffeine directly to my brain. And I was talking like I had it, like chewing tobacco in my mouth. Um, <laughs> so I had to keep that up. But, you know, I, I got a bonus die for, you know, using using the tools at hand to the best effect. Mm. And then at the end of the game, one character gets a promotion and one character gets killed uh, for for messing up. Wow. Yeah. And so it was, it's hilarious. So if you get a chance, check it out. Um, so that was one. Another great thing I did was attending the live shows of the C team and acquisitions incorporated. And I think the videos for those should be out by now, or at least some of them. So if you are, if you're a fan, give it a look. So tell me about the, uh, experience being there and watching it live. It, it was good. It was good. It was the first time I'd done so live. I'd seen some of them, um, uh, recorded and also we saw in theater the the one year yep the pax prime the pax prime mm-hmm. like 3 years ago maybe um two or 3 years ago yeah and, it's been about that long yeah and so it's just a different experience when you're there and it gives you a real feel for the energy that the fans of these shows bring because they are they are into it they are Super fans to the extreme. I luckily I got some VIP passes, so I was in the second row and had a good view of everything. Um, but it, it gave me some good insights into you know the difference between playing D and D as a game and these experiences as actual play streams, um, which which is nice. Uh, Jeremy Crawford took over the reins of running Acquisitions Incorporated uh, from Chris Perkins. And there was some speculation of how he would do, especially with people who maybe didn't play D&D or don't know D&D very well, just know know it through the shows. So they d- didn't know Jeremy or who Jeremy was uh, as much as they were familiar with Chris Perkins. Mm-hmm. And Jeremy was absolutely, as I knew he would be, was absolutely brilliant. Um, you know, he he knows the game, obviously, being the rules designer. Uh, lead rules designer. Uh, he is a great presence. He has great acting abilities. So everyone that I talked to after I left was just buzzing with how good he was. Very uh, cool. J- uh, Jerry Holkins, who plays, uh, oh boy, Omen Dron <laughs> in Acquisition Incorporated and who acts as the DM for the C team, is absolutely amazing. He is so funny. It hurts. And and I am a snob when it comes to comedy. Yeah. Uh, yeah I don't just are. like any comedy. And he's, as a player, amazing. As as a DM, even more amazing. Uh, Patrick Rothfuss is great, and he is a cheaty pants. <laughs> How did he cheat? Well, it's for the C team. Um, he plays Drebus Beestinger, Rosie Beestinger's uh, son. And it... Obviously, this is comedy, right? This isn't a a competitive game of D anD. d This is mm-hmm. let's have fun. So they showed his character sheet up on the screen, and he was multi. He was tenth level, but he was multi class in about six different ways. Um, first of all, which is illegal because you need certain prerequisites to be able to multi class, which he did not have. Um, so th- you know that's that's rule. That's one. It's these are not. I'm not complaining. These are just things as a game designer. I'm noting. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Second of all, so he has all of these classes to do something like this. Uh rage and then sneak attack with his great axe. 
which of course is you can't sneak attack with your great axe. You need a finesse weapon using your dexterity, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you know, it was just things like that that are hilarious. So when he said that, half the audience was laughing because they think, oh, he's power gaming and he's get, putting one over on the DM, or or you know, he's like power gaming and and optimizing correctly and the other people are laughing because they know how illegal this is yeah but who cares it's it's fun yeah uh so it was just you know things like that and it just it really brought home the sense that what a diverse hobby we have because there these aren't aren't games D games in the sense of you're playing a game by the rules right but they're they bring together such a highly entertaining group of storytellers and they're using D and D as just a prompt to bring out the story, mm-hmm. and, and that's that's really okay. In, in a sense, it's almost like an indie game, you know, that they're playing more than D and D. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, they're just using it as a as a way to help them make stuff up, right? But what they're creating up there is such a rich world uh, that people want to be involved in. People were handing out crafts that they made, cookies that they've made based on past shows. Um, <laughs> You know, happy little Happy Meal prizes based on a restaurant that one of the characters on the C team mentioned offhand, you know, 30 episodes ago. And there's just there's just this amazing community around it that was fun to to uh, be involved with. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's fun stuff, right? Like that's that's fandom, right? Yep, absolutely. Strong stuff. And. And you know, other than that, I just walked around. It, it was like a smaller version of Gen Con, but also there were uh, less people, but it was in a more contained area. Mm-hmm. So it felt pretty busy. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, I can totally see that. And and Evil John Carney um, bought Bob and I dinner. Thank you, John. I really appreciate it. That was the best steak I've had in years. Wow. Nice. That's very yeah. nice of you, John. Yep. So um, those packs. No, that was PAX. Uh, we, if you want to hear Bob's experiences with that, you can listen to Misdirected Mark this coming week. That'll be out there. Yep. So let's talk about the next thing. How to mess with metagamers and improve your game from DM David. It's been a while since we've done a DM David article, but this one was really good. I read it when you dropped it to me a couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he. Uh, we haven't mentioned him in a while, but I always read his stuff. And it seems like once a month we should at least mention him once because... The stuff he puts up is so concise, precise, and insightful. It's very good. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so the idea behind this article is that metagaming can be used as a positive force to move the game along. In fact, he makes a reference in the article to Gary Gygax and how Gary Gygax would use metagaming in a lot of ways to, to move the game along, and that it's also part of the game. It was um really interesting when I was reading the article because I'm like, oh, we're, we're not... We talked about this on Misdirected Mark a while ago, um, the levels of play. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, the metagame is really just playing at the game level. Right. So, I mean, there's I never really thought that there was anything, anything wrong with that. Uh, I mean, I know a lot of people do think there's something wrong with that. It's just a different way to play, play games. Mm-hmm. But if you were really into playing at the character level and, and trying to, like, separate your character knowledge from your player knowledge, there are some clever things that you can do to sort of, like, make that work for your game or at least make it so that your players can't use some of that uh, preconceived knowledge that they might have to their advantage. Right. And so, he sets up four specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, we could do a whole episode about 
different ways to do this. His four, though, were pretty good. They are um, really good. Yep. Uh, I'll do the first. You do the second and we'll go. Sure. Absolutely. Okay. So, so the first one is when you put out a battle mat, it usually signals a fight. Mm-hmm. So your countermeasure as a DM is to bring out that battle mat, but use it for non-combat scenes. So you bring it out and then just run a social encounter and the players are always going to be on the edge of their seat wondering, should we be fighting now? Should we be thinking about that? When's the battle coming? And it may make them think about the game in a different way. Uh, another trick that you can use for that, too, for um, moving the conversation around the table is that you can point at miniatures on the on the mat and be like, the camera has moved over here. Mm-hmm. And that helps yes. focus down who's in the conversation and whatnot. Yep, and one other thing you can do is roll initiative, even outside of combat, to give everyone an equal chance to participate. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and you know when they see when the players see initiative roll, they're thinking combat, but then um, nothing comes of it, possibly. <laughs> so another one is you can use um, minis. Often are represented as combatants in games, but you can use minis for furnishings and non-combatants instead. I mean, if we go back to our previous example. If we are having uh, this social encounter in a bar and you have the actual bar out there and tables and other miniatures to signify NPCs that you're talking to, that changes the the context of what minis mean. Mm -hmm. Uh, His example was great in terms of using minis to represent like a statue. Yeah, that one is a really good example. Because if you put that on the board, what are the players going to do? They're going to keep an eye on it because they assume it's going to be uh, coming to life and attacking them. So they'll start avoiding it or paying more attention to it than they might necessarily otherwise. But it that's also good um, then if the statue is not a combatant, but it somehow is important in the combat for, you know, maybe if you're within its aura, you take damage or you gain hit points or something of that. If you use a mini for that, it draws the attention to it just in a different way. Or you can use it for cover. Yes. Exactly. Uh, The third... Oh, go ahead. No, that's all. Go ahead. Okay. So the third is my favorite one. And this is normally, if you're running, say, a four-hour session or one-shot or whatever, the last fight is the big tough fight. Your countermeasure for that is to vary the strength of your combats. Don't make the first one the easy one, the middle one the kind of hard one, and the last one the difficult one, but switch it around. I did this a lot when I was writing um, for third and fourth edition um, organized play because players would always save their big spells for the end, save their big daily powers for the end, and it would make those last battles boring. So what I did was I put the hardest combat right up front because the players would save their resources and then find themselves in trouble. Mm Mm-hmm. And they would think, wow, if this combat is like this, the other ones are going to be terribly difficult. And it would just add to the tension, even though normally by the end, if they used their resources because they had to in the early combats, that made the last combat, even though it was technically easier by challenge rating, um, it was harder because they'd used their resources early. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a really clever trick, right? Like. I mean, we've been talking about this, and you've been talking to me about this concept for for years at this point. Right. Uh, The last one is this idea that unique minis represent important NPCs. That is a a trope or a thing that we all think of. Um, 
you don't have to do that. You can rename your stuff and use unique miniatures for just regular bandits and whatnot. And you can use a bunch of play miniatures if you want, or however you want to 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 do it. So, um, like if you have a bunch of D and D minis, you can just throw them all out on the table, and you know then none of them really represent any one that's any more important than another. Uh, yep. the, the example in the article is uh, on roll twenty. Somebody tends to name all of their NPC minis like the little tokens on the table. So everybody, you never know who's important and who's not really important. Mm-hmm. What what I tend to do is use dice to represent the monsters. So for the first couple of combats, I'll throw out, you know, three D6s for the, the minions and then a D12 for the big monster in the combat. They'll do that a couple of times. And then for the last combat, I will switch it up and I will put out three D6 plus a D12 but one of the D6s is actually the big bad. Mm-hmm. And I'll describe it a little bit, but not a lot. And characters inevitably will do their mega attacks on that D12, even though that's just one of the minions. That's funny. And that gives your big guy a couple extra rounds to uh, get his attacks off. I have um, I have little wooden people. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, like, they're just like um, almost like little wooden straight meeple type people that I got. And I put uh, colored um, pipe cleaners around their throats. Nice. And that's how I distinguish the different colors. So, like, I mean, I could have a rainbow of people out there, except they're all just bandits, right? Right. Um, But then, of course, I could be like, well, the red one's really the one that's the big nasty one, and the rest of them are just, you know, scrubs. Yep. Yep. So, yeah, there's a ton of different ways that you can do it, and it's all very effective. And it makes Mm -hmm. people have to pay attention a little bit more, too. So even though we haven't said so in a month or so, always check out dmdavid.com for the latest greatness from uh, Dave Hartledge, DM David. So next thing, uh, AL updates. You want to tell me about season eight? What's going on with that? Sure. Well, they, they originally announced that season eight would run from now until May of 2019. And then they took a look at the amount of content that season eight was bringing and they thought, maybe we should make it a little longer. So uh, Season 8 of the Adventures League will now run until August of 2019. And they put up an article that, that mentioned it, and they, they broke out the number of hours that you're probably going to be playing the different parts of Season 8. Um, Dragon Heist, about 32 hours, they consider. Um, Dungeon of the Mad Mage, anywhere from 120 to 160 hours of content if you run the whole thing. Uh 80 hours of just the Adventures League adventures, and that doesn't include the 9 to 12 hours of three epics that are running. Three epics. That's crazy. And, and, yeah, and then there's any DM Guild uh, content that comes out for Dragon Heist or Dungeon of the Mad Mage, some which is out already, but some is still in development and releasing. So that's days and days and days of just Adventures League content if you want to run it. So you will need until August to to get all that done. Is there anything else with season eight, or are we all good there? Uh, that's that was the big announcement for the season eight stuff. There, they also have been doing every Christmas winter season for the last couple of years a uh, kind of a merry midwinter. Now, I don't want to say contest, but you know, just a just a season seasonal uh, specials. So they announced three very recently. The first is Pose in the Photo Booth. 
Yeah, so cool. yeah, you get get your players together if you're playing Adventures League and strike a pose. You send your photos to the Adventures League group, community at dndadventuresleague.org. And they're going to put together a slideshow, use your pictures on their social media pages or on their website. And then near the end of December, they're going to release a special certificate for anyone who sent in the photos for download. But that's really neat. I, yep. I think that's pretty awesome. And so the, that's just one of three things. The second Ooh, thing is... What's the yeah. second thing? What's the second, the second thing? The second thing is enjoy the season of giving. They're going to give out special certificates to the community throughout the months. Uh the first one is already out. It is the Candle of the Hearth. So you can go to the Adventures League site, and we also have the link in our show notes to the PDF. The Candle of the Hearth, it's a special magic item that allows you to take a short rest in 10 minutes instead of an hour, as long as you're basking in the glow of this candle. It roars like a uh, fireplace, so 30 feet of brightness, 30 feet of dim light for the 10 minutes that it burns. And you can just go download it, use it in your games, give it to your players, uh, use it as a player yourself, whatever you want to do with it. Man, that's that's really nice and pretty cool. Yep. So what's and, the third and that's, thing? And, well, that's just the first one. So oh. they will put out other certificates later. We just don't know what they are yet. And the third one is the Midwinter Gala. In next week's issue of Dragon Magazine, so hopefully it will be out by the time this show drops, they are going to feature a new adventure available for Adventures League play. It is called Winter's Splendor, and it is DDAL 05. Um, it should be up. We're recording on the 6th, and it's supposed to be up as of today. So hopefully it will be up on the uh, DMs Guild soon, or you can get it through uh, Dragon Magazine. And it is done by Ashley Warren, who is one of the new Guild Adepts. And I'm looking forward to it. I got the outline for it uh, because I interviewed her for the Dragon Magazine column that I do. And so, you can follow her at Ashley Warren on Twitter. Yes, you can. So those are the three things that have been announced about the um, Merry Midwinter for Adventures League. Man, that's a lot of cool stuff that's going on. That's, uh, that's really nice and really there, fun, right? Yeah. A bunch of cool people, and now you've got something to do on your winter holiday. And even if you're not an Adventures League player, you can still use all these resources. Um, you don't need to be an Adventures League player to enjoy them. Yeah, I'll tell you, that's like a total thing you can do, because I'm doing that with um, Eberron right now, because the, the Embers of the Last War, like, we've been playing that. I've, we're three sessions in, and um, I've used the first three adventures, the prologue and the first two adventures, and it's mm -hmm. been fun. Like, we're not... um. We're not using, like, AL rules or anything like that. We're just playing D&D, &D, and there's yep. been a lot of uh, interesting developments that have come from that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, absolutely, you can totally just use these adventures to run a D&D &D campaign and to, like, play your normal D&D &D games, like, that are not Adventures League legal. Mm -hmm. All right, let's get into our main topic for the day. Dragon Heist Part 7, Chapter 4, Dragon Season Part 3. So you want to give us the summary of what's going on here? Well, first, why don't, why don't I do the recap? So the first two parts were us talking about the, the overall section of Chapter 4, which is the, the main crux of the adventure, if you ask me, is is hunting down the vault and then finding the, finding the vault and then going into the vault and getting the mm -hmm. coins. Yep. Um, the first part, we kind of went through the giant overview, including the introduction. The second part is highly dependent 
um, which villain you uh, you have chosen to be your villain. And we talked last week about if the Xanathar Guild is that. It is a series of, there's like these ten encounters, but eight of them um, are the ones that you sort of pick be based on uh, based on the villain. And it kind of leads you through this, this uh, very interesting, I don't know, feels like a like an episode of like csi or leverage or something like that right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's it's got that kind of format to it but a lot of weird things could happen and, and like you can mess with that format as as you go through it so we that was last week's and then this week we're going to talk about the vault yep so just to summarize how we got here um in order to find the vault you need to find the stone of galore and one of the characters must attune to it once that character is attuned to it they know automatically know the vault's location as well as the three keys that are needed to open it. And as we mentioned last week, these keys are not literal keys, right? They are just different things that you must bring into the vicinity of the vault door in order for it to open. And you can do some really cool things with those keys. There's a chart that has 18 different objects that could be one of the keys, uh, but you could make your own and you could set whole adventures around the character's getting those keys if you so choose. Yeah, you could. Um, but and otherwise, they're just kind of funny, different little things. I mean, one of your characters could be a key based on whether you turn yourself invisible or you know something like that. So uh, keys aside, at this point in the adventure, the characters know where the vault is. They have the three keys, so now they have to enter it and just get the gold. Easy as pie, right? Yeah, totally easy, because that's, that's how this always works, right? Yep. Uh, so the map in the book, it is a Dyson map again. It's quite good. I like it a lot. It's very uh, very evocative of, of things. And it's not super complicated. So like it's, there's like three, three, three areas, basically. And I would say um, that a lot of this stuff is uh, the adventure locations are based on these areas instead of just uh, specifically encounters, if that makes mm-hmm. any sense. Yeah. Does that make sense, Sean? Yeah, yep. I I think so. Yeah. yeah. And um I I like this design quite a bit. Um because it doesn't feel like, I'm so used to the I was so used to the 4th edition design for the longest time, right? Like it's an encounter, encounter, mm-hmm. encounter. And this is more like areas of like exploration and whatnot because there's not necessarily things to fight constantly. In fact, there's not very many things to fight at all. Right. Um and there's a great theme attached to it. This whole place is is based on like a dwarven vault. Mm-hmm. And that's really, it really comes out in the writing, I think, without being, like, beating you over the head with it, if you ask me. Right. It, it's definitely got that dwarven theme, and you are absolutely correct in saying it's more exploration than it is any other pillar, this whole vault, which, luckily, if you as a DM need to make that change, it's not terribly hard to add some combats to it. Um, and we'll talk about little tweaks that you might be able to make depending on what your party likes uh, as we go through each of the different sections. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the door, I mean, we, we stopped at getting the keys to open the door, right? Mm-hmm. So there you go. Open the door. The door is there. Um, bring the five, the three keys within five feet of the door it just slides open. Yep. Did you have any problems with that? I, I, I do, but I don't, I don't have a problem with it because it's not hard to find the keys. Um, I personally would add other ways to open the door just in case 
something happened where they couldn't get a key or they lost a key or they had to leave and come back or for, for any other reason, um, I would make a different way to open the door, but I would make it uh, very hard to do and I would put some pretty vicious traps on it. Yeah, like what? Uh, just explosive runes. Uh, I, you know, uh, just for a for a vault that's going to contain half a million gold, I would want more than just these three keys to be a way in. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, um, I, f- I feel you. I yeah. think. Um... I think I would put a disintegr. My, my favorite is to put the disintegration trap on the door. So, like, yeah, you can s- put your life force into the door possibly to open it, but it, it starts like disintegrating your body slowly. So, like, you sure. start losing part of your hand, and then of course somebody has to make the choice to like cut off your limb. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Before yeah. you completely turn to dust. <laughs> I I think that's very evocative, and and I like that. I'm terrible though, so you know, like that's a terrible thing to do to your player characters. Well, speaking of terrible, let's go. Uh, <laughs> let's go to V two. Uh, sure. The entrance foyer. So, there's like a bunch of false doors in this area. It's a pretty big area, and there are these bridges above your head. They're like sixty feet overhead, and you can access them. I, I would imagine if you're clever, right? Like that seems like a thing that you could do. Like throw a throw a grappling hook up there with grappling a hook and climb up there. Yep. Now the the bridges, as we'll find out in a later room, are crumbling, and if you put too much weight on them, they will collapse. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that will probably catch uh, characters and bite them in the butt later if they do try to throw a grappling hook up and climb. But it's definitely an option, and I think it's a cool option, and I would definitely allow my characters uh, in a game that I was running to to do that. So all these there's, there's all these false doors, right? Like, but they don't do anything, if I remember correctly. There's nothing interesting about them. They're just there. Yep. So of the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, about twelve um, false doors. I'm sorry, twelve sets of doors. Only two of them actually lead somewhere. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's a little boring. It's it's not terrible. It's just a throwaway thing. But I would do. I would turn these. Speaking of being a terrible DM, I would turn these into a trap. I would test the characters here and now. Because they don't belong here, according to A, the dwarves that originally made this vault, and B, Lord Neverember. So I would want more traps. I would want more things to get in their way. And this is a perfect opportunity. Twelve doors here. Only two of them lead onward. The other ten do something. And what I would do is turn them into a riddle trap. Where if they understand, you know, they need to read dwarven and they need to know something to choose the correct door. And if they do, no problem. If they don't, I would teleport them outside the vault, yet the keys disappear. You know what you could do as as part of it? Like you can um you can put like symbols or, or runic dwarven letters for um each of the types of keys on mm-hmm. each of the different doors. Because there's twenty four doors technically because they're all double doors. They're all double doors, right. Yeah, so you can put a bunch of different symbols for keys on the doors, but only the ones that are actually the keys that you have, and of course you have to interpret them, right, are yep. the things that let you get through. Sure. Yep, and and you could you could absolutely do that. Um, if your characters are mo- more into riddles and puzzles, you could do something where the 
the PC or the players themselves have to figure something out. Or if you want to do it more in character, you could do as Chris said and and have it be like that. Uh, or you could just make it if they make a you know religion check or whatever check you want to do, uh, then they find the right doors. And so this this leads back to that they get teleported back out of the vault behind the closed doors. And then the keys disappear. So in order to get back in, they would either have to go back out and get the keys again or hazard the trap in order to get back in. Yeah, see, that's a cool thing in a lot of ways because you can just hazard the trap. But And then if yeah. not hazarding the trap, you have to go through all that rigmarole to get those keys again. Right, and as soon as you leave, you know that the groups that are trying to find it are hounding you. So you're going to have to fight some more combats as you go back up into Waterdeep through the streets. Yep, to, and then uh, deal with the, you know, other people that you know want stuff or need something from you, or like the, maybe the keys even change and the stone yep. knows. Yep, exactly. It could be all sorts of stuff like that, right? Absolutely. Uh, okay, so that's fun. Uh, let's go to, to to area three, which is the stairs and the fresco. So there's an enthralling fresco trap here. Um, I like this trap, but I can see people not liking it because it takes away control of a PC. Yeah, uh, yeah. So what the trap does, I didn't write it down, but I think I remember, is if when you look at this uh, fresco that shows dwarves fighting goblins, if you fail your saving throw, you become charmed, you become enthralled with it, and you just want to stand there for twenty four hours and look at it, and also and if, protect it, and protect it, right? And if people try to drag you away, you claw and you fight your way back to it. Also, you'll attack them if they try to damage the fresco. Yeah. So in order to get past the magic of the fresco, you can destroy a piece of it, but you want to protect it, so you're going to fight anyone that tries to destroy it. And the the, the harshness of this trap is after 24 hours, you can make another saving throw. But if you fail, you, uh, you gain a uh, level of exhaustion, and you stand there for another 24 hours. Because mm -hmm. you don't want to eat, you don't want to drink, you just want to look at this. So it's interesting, it's harsh, I like it, but it may be a little too much for some players. Yeah, that's where I was at. I'm like, I like this a lot, but like I said, it takes it takes some... Yeah, uh, Players don't like necessarily being mind-controlled right. that, in that way, right? Exactly. Especially for so, that period of time. Sure. So what I would do, knowing that my players like combat more, is turn this into a trap uh, combat sort of encounter where people that fail the save are stunned instead of charmed, and they're only stunned for a round, and they get to make a saving throw at the end of each round. But in the meantime, the goblins in the fresco become real monsters, step out of the fresco and fight. So the, the stunned creatures are obviously at risk and can't act, but it, it shortens the... It still gives you the same sort of charm effect, without having it last for 24 hours and becoming a long-term thing. It mm -hmm. becomes a part of a combat. And you can also make those those fresco goblins m more flavorful by saying that when they step off the thing, they're still flat and painted. Oh, yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, and then when you hit them, like they just chip off and whatnot because they're mm -hmm. still made of that sort of like paint, the, the fresco-y. Yep. The, 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 it's like a cementy type stuff if it's that kind of fresco. Right. It could also right. just be a tile. It could be tile goblins if it's that kind of fresco. I didn't quite catch what kind of fresco it was. I think it just says it's a fresco. Mm -hmm. And you know, at fourth level or so, you're going to want to use a monster other than goblins, but you could just reflavor something um, pretty neat to uh Yeah, you could just to add to the them. goblin too, like when they get yeah. hit. like 
they they split into more of them if you want. You can do whatever you want that way. Yeah, give them some construct attributes or something. Yeah, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Uh, the other thing is you can just get past this trap by closing your eyes and walking by it. Yep. So that is that is the clever way to walk by it. Mm-hmm. Once you realize it's magic, but usually by the time you realize it's magic, it's too late. This is true. Now we're going to come back to this fresco in a minute as we discuss the rest of this adventure. But next is the Hall of Moradin. So you go upstairs from the last room and you are now in this hall that is a a fresco on the west wall and then three pillars that are carved as giant warhammers going along the way and then if you look to the east you could look across those bridges that you saw from the floor below yes um so one of the things here is there's uh some rubble on the ground near uh, but uh Along that wall where the fresco is, um, there's nothing in it. It's a context clue because in the crack of that wall is a black pudding. Mm-hmm. So th- I think that's the, I always like encounters like that. Like, well, there's something wrong with that wall, right? Like something, right. something's inside of it. Something broke it. Something happened over there. You sure. don't know what it is, but when you go and check it out, then you get attacked by a black pudding, which they're nasty, yeah. right, Sean? They are. Remember when you DM a black pudding? A couple of things. One, they start out as large and they split when they're attacked. But once they get and they get one size smaller when the two pieces. So they start with large or yeah, start with large. So they go to two medium from the two medium. They go to two small or actually before small total. But once they're small, they can't split anymore. I've seen DMs run them incorrectly where they continue to to uh, split even after their small size. But they shouldn't. And the other thing is black puddings wreak havoc on the character's equipment. So after a few attacks, characters might have weapons that are doing minus three or minus four points of damage per hit, which at lower levels can be quite a penalty. Yeah, it is. Or their armor could start out at an AC of 15 and become an AC of 11 very, very easily. Um, or whatever which, their dex modifier is. Exactly. Like exactly. your armor's gone. <laughs> Yeah, once it hits AC ten. So if you start with leather and you get hit twice and it goes down to AC ten, your your armor falls off. Um, so remember that ahead of time because when that happens, you're going to have some parties that freak out and want to leave and go get new equipment. It's true. Um, so you have to decide ahead of time: Are you going to allow that? What's going to be the penalty for them doing that? Or how are you going to adjust for that if they continue forward with? Uh, equipment that's pretty messed up. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the next, we're, I think we know we're going to talk about that fresco again because we're going to talk about the secret room. So, yep, uh, there's treasure in the secret room. It's not necessary to find, so it's a nice little bonus for characters who look around. And then you had some something to say about that. Yeah. So starting with this room, there are going to be things that only happen if a dwarven character is in the vicinity. And you really have no way of knowing that throughout any of this uh, adventure, any of this scene. There's no clues given that, um, you know, that you need to be a dwarf. There's dwarven stuff everywhere, but no uh, clue that if you're a dwarf, special things happen. One way to get around this is to let that fresco that we talked about, if someone becomes charmed or stunned, Turn them into a dwarf, not mechanically, but just say, hey, guess what? You were a human. Now you're a dwarf. Your stats don't change. I mean, you can always do that if you want. It just takes a while sometimes. 
Um, so you're a dwarf now, and you will be a dwarf for 24 hours. Now, as that character walks around as a dwarf, they begin to trigger all of these things, and it becomes something that's interesting and right out front rather than something that's hidden. I agree. That's completely true, and I think that's a great idea. I think the thing that you just said is, is wonderful because it comes with a risk because if, if you get stunned by that thing and the goblins come out and attack you, mm-hmm. you know, that's a problem. That is a problem. <laughs> but, you're, but now you're a dwarf, which is you right. know, useful for which everything is, else. Which is going to be very useful for the rest of the adventure. So, yeah, the, uh, the secret door opens automatically if a dwarf stands next to it. Uh, so... If you have a dwarf already, you're you're going to be fine. Uh, otherwise, find a way to turn people into a dwarf or find a way to give a clue that tells the party. If you have a dwarf or someone that looks like a dwarf using Alter Self or some low-level spell, you're going to be set. All right, let's move on to the next uh, sort of three rooms. There's V6, V7, and V8. Well, we can talk about the bridges, too, if you want. Yep. So, so- Go ahead. Uh, go, go ahead. You can go. Oh, okay. So those three bridges we talked about, um, they're starting to crumble and rot, so you have to be very careful as you cross them. Um, two of them, you don't know that they're going to fall until you put 150 pounds of weight on them. Uh, the middle one, you can see that there is a gap that you must jump over in order to get across it. So each of these bridges leads to a room. Uh, the first room is called the Hammer and Anvil. You want to go from there? Yeah, this is. Um, I, I love this room quite a bit. Uh, it's not necessary to get into it. It doesn't do anything. Uh, it's you have to be if it, you're a dwarf, it automatically opens. Otherwise, you need like a DC twenty one strength check to open the door. Which, at this point, I'm like, what if I fail? What does it matter? Like, I'll just try again, right? Until I open it. Like, what is my, what is the, yeah. what is the co- the consequence to not getting there? Right. 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 So, um, that's dumb. <laughs> I hate yeah. stuff like that, right? Like, yeah. there's no, there's nothing. I mean, as a game master, we can do some things. Like, oh look, one of the factions that is trying to also get this stuff has shown up, and the door's wide open to the to the vault because you didn't close it. But if you close the door behind you to the vault, then that's not a problem either. So, right. just might as well let people walk through these doors. Right. Um, so you can do something as simple as if they can get in without breaking the door down. Um, they can go on with no problem. If they have to break the door down, just let them break the door down. But they have some sort of curse on them for the rest of the time they're in this tomb where they have disadvantage on initiative or their first saving throw of each combat or every five minutes their first saving throw has disadvantage, something like that. Or in the case of this particular room, the hammer and anvil, um, there's like a thing where you can walk in there and and, and uh, ring an anvil with a hammer and it provides you temporary hit points. Yep. Uh, Sean, you wrote a clever thing in there like it's not given to orcs, goblins, and bugbears or right. people who are cursed. In fact, it does 1d8 psychic damage if they hear the strike. Right. Yep. So this is a great, this room itself is a great example of uh, the cure for the common empty room. Um, there's a hammer and an anvil. You can find a way to get the hammer that's stuck in the wall out, use the hammer to hit the anvil, and every all the party members gain 10 temporary hit points. Neat. Not horribly overpowered, but just something cool to put in the room that these dwarves would do. Yep, but the then end. I was thinking, yeah, but then I was thinking tables that I run, especially at conventions, uh, are good. They have orcs and goblins and kobolds and bugbears and all sorts of these monstrous races that the dwarves hate. They wouldn't give these people uh, 10 temporary hit points. They're gods, the dwarven gods. They would say, take this D8 damage, goblin. Um, 
So that's you know, that's just something that I would change if the party that I had was as diverse as they usually are. Yeah, it rings so sweetly to you know the the goodly humanoid races, but those right. goblinoids mm, mm-hmm. that that ringing sound just pierces their eardrums. Yes, Morden is having none of your nonsense, Mister Hobgoblin. Yeah, um, let me skip to V eight. So okay. that's not V7, because V7 is the thing that leads to the next part of the, the adventure. Sounds but good. V, V8 is called Old Fire Eyes. So this is just a straight-up trap. Mm-hmm. So it's um, it's it's a statue of a dwarf with some pretty eyes, if I remember correctly. I just have my notes, and I have the... the let me look at the adventure real quick. Yeah, it's a 10-foot-tall yeah. painted statue of an armored male dwarf. Um, and there's like, a, there's like a, a, a ring in the ground that's to a fake trap door that goes down. And if you yank on it, it... The um, magical fire spring from springs from the statue's eyes and hits you, so you have to make a DC eighteen dexterity saving throw, or you know, take some damage. Take take twenty two points of damage at yeah. fourth level. That's yeah, it's, beefy. It's it's painful, right? <laughs> I like it. I I I think I don't think traps are beefy enough in general. So I really like that. The only thing I would change is um, the the god is Gorm Goldfin, who is the dwarven god of vigilance. And so there's no clue there that says that this is a trap. I would put something in there to let the players know that this trap door isn't what it should be based on just the scenery um, around it. Because then I feel justified if they just go yank on it in dealing 22 points of damage to someone or multiple people, which is what I would do if I was running this. We'll just make a, a two-tiered um, intelligence religion check. Like, if right. it gets to a 20, be like, there's no reason that Gorm would ever have a trap door in the floor. He's about vigilance, right? Like, he would be standing in, he would either be standing in front of that door or he would be standing, or that door would be behind right. him because he'd be guarding it. Um, yeah. It shouldn't just be in front of him. Perfect. Yep, that that works absolutely perfectly, that religion check. Yeah, so that, cause that makes it out of, uh, out of character, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the context clue that is required to be like, well, there's something weird about this. Right. Uh, okay, let's kick back to V7, Dumathoin's Secret. So um, it's got the same kind of door as as V, uh, V6, which is the problem that I have. Like, this is right. the door that you need to go through to proceed with the adventure. Stop making doors that block that don't have any consequences. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, why are we wasting time on that? Um there's a riddle inside of here, too, and I always find that riddles are tricky in, in, in games. I didn't want to say anything earlier because I also don't think they're the worst thing ever. Uh, this one seems simple enough if you can read Dwarven, which if you are if you have that fresco thing going on, you can probably then read Dwarven, too, because why not, right? Sure. Um, then you can see that you know you have to say something basically true. Mm-hmm. And this could be a really a, cool... A secret. A hmm? secret that's true. Secret and true, yes. Right. That is unknown to everybody else. Mm-hmm. And it's a really cool moment for a character to show something about themselves. Um, it could also be, in some groups, just a moment of humor, depending. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, uh, yeah, I agree. I would make, if if it was the right group, I would have every person have to give a secret because I want to hear what these players have to say, right? I want them to come up with something cool. Uh, otherwise, if your you know, characters are more into the exploration and less of the role-playing, then just let one of them do the secret and move on quickly. I agree. All right, so then that opens up a secret staircase that goes down, and that leads into the main vault. And you come and find the dragon, and the dragon is in dwarven form carrying that that dragon staff, which uh, the dragon staff of 
Agharian? Agharian? Sure, why not? That's close enough, we're, right? We're going we're gonna to go it. Uh, the dwarf calls himself Bangrock Clanghammer. Uh, it's actually the the gold adult gold dragon Aranax, and this is kind of the this is a. I don't think you want to fight a gold dragon at fourth level. CR seventeen. I don't think so. Yeah. So you can try to fool the dragon. You can try to appeal the, to the dragon's sense of justice. There's. I mean, this adventure doesn't really pull punches. Like you can just fail. Yes. Like this can go terribly wrong for you. You can die in here. Um. That that is a thing that can happen, and if you want to play it that way, I uh, I think you should, totally should. Like I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Right. But in fact, that might be the thing with the strength check on the doors. Like maybe you just can't get through them. Maybe you have to go find a different way to like get around that. Right. Yeah. Or you can come up with you can turn um, Oranax into a quest giver. So if they fail to fool him, if they fail to appeal to uh, him in terms of this gold belongs to the whole city, it should be given back. If they can't do any of that and they don't feel like fighting him because they don't want to die, turn him into a quest giver and move on to the next part of the campaign. This gold will still be there and they can always come back in a different part of the story when this gold may have different meaning or when something in the situation may have changed. That's 100% true. There's also a whole bunch of stuff left in this book that we haven't talked about. So whoever your villain is, you could mm-hmm. have the quest. You could have them turn into a quest giver and give you a quest to go into one of the layers of one of these villains, whoever sure. your villain is, and get something. Absolutely. So that is another way to play out this situation. Uh, but the, the two best ways to do it is either fool the dragon, which means everybody has to make a charisma deception check, versus the dragon's wisdom insight check. Good luck. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get advantage of Raynar's with them because you know uh, Aranox knows Lord Neverember and, and knows that his son is Lord is Raynar and doesn't really know that they're fighting with each other. Right. Or you can appeal to the dragon's sense of justice because the dragon knows that this money was embezzled, mm-hmm. and while he's kind of greedy and you know got paid to be down here, he also has like a conscience, and right. will just be like, "All right, if it's for Neverwinter, like I get it. Take the money." Um, you can't have my gems. That's my food, and take yep. a hike. Yep. And then the characters have a lot of gold. Mm-hmm. So then there's a final confrontation. Uh, one mm-hmm. way or another, they run into a group of villains on the way out. We did the Xanathar thing, so we're just going to stick with the Xanathar. But there's one for each of them. And uh, with the Xanathar thing, it's a Noska or Gray with six bugbears and a gazer. Uh, mm-hmm. Noska has been killed at some point in the in the past. Then Narl uh, Zabrindus and his Grell bodyguard are there. That seems like a fun fight. I like Grell, though, so that's why. Yeah. Um, there's a cool thing where you can get reinforcements based on how things played out when, with the uh, uh, and how the factions work with the uh, the PCs. So, like, for instance, Force Grey is one of them, and that has a Melon Water Dragon uh, coming to assist, but Melon is under the Xanathar's sway, so if Xanathar is the main villain, the, the Melon will turn on the PCs in the middle of that fight. So that's kind of a neat thing. Yep. And then one other thing that can happen is that you're leaving, you run into these bad guys who say, give us the gold. And you can say, we don't have the gold. Uh, There's a dragon back there guarding it. We'll, we'll take you to, to the dragon if you want. Yep. And then you can throw down. (laughs) Yeah. Then you can go in and watch the dragon, destroy them or join them in trying to defeat the dragon. If you come to a deal, uh, the, the Jarlaxle is really good for that because Jarlaxle, um, 
he, you don't want to fight him. He shows up. Like, if you're mm-hmm. doing the Jarlaxle as a villain, he'll actually just show up. Right. And, um, and that's a problem. Like, you can't fight him. He'll kill you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he'll fight a dragon for the gold. Have yep. fun with that. And he doesn't even really want the gold. He wants the staff. And he wants mm-hmm. the gold for Waterdeep. But he really wants the staff. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a fun way to play that out. Um, and just as a reminder, that dragon staff is what keeps... Well, there's a, there's a mythal kind of over... Waterdeep that keeps dragons out unless they hold or are touched by the dragon staff, which would then let the dragons in. Mm-hmm. So if someone has the dragon staff, they can lead a dragon army into Waterdeep and there isn't anything that the protection can do about it. Yeah, and Jarlaxle isn't exactly known for not doing stuff like that. Like This is true. Know, he's possessed the crystal shard at times. He's, you know, yeah. um, had one of the... Um, uh, there was the witch tower that he was in tr- that he had control of for a little while, or some part of it, especially the dragon version of it. So, and I think he still has that gem on him somewhere. So, I mean, there's he. <laughs> sorry, I'm nerding out about the Forgotten Realms. I might know a lot <laughs> about the Cell Swords. I, I kind of like those characters a lot. Yep. So, um, yeah, it's a uh, it's good stuff, right? Like, there's a lot of things that you can do with this this um this adventure. It's one of the best things about it. Uh, so let's let's finish up real quick. Like you can die in the vault. Yep. That's just a thing. And um, if nobody knows, if the bad guys don't know where the vault is, then you've actually accomplished your goal, even though you've died there, because the bad guys will never get it. Mm-hmm. It's true. And then there's the thing where you actually get the cash. And uh, there's a couple of things with that. Like you have five hundred thousand gold pieces. Waterdeep is like you should give that money back to the city. Mm-hmm. And you can say no, but when you say no. Um, they're coming after you. Like the city is coming after you. Yeah, there That's... is no respite because the villains want to kill you. The leaders of Waterdeep, good or evil, want that money back, mm-hmm. and they're not afraid to do some nefarious things to get it. That's true. Yeah. And on the bright side, if you just give the money back, they'll give you fifty thousand gold pieces. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of money. Oh yes, it is. And I'll tell you what: if I'm running the game and the characters take fifty thousand gold pieces. About two more sessions, they are going to be begging me to let them give that money back. I know, right? I mean, that's the thing that the the book even says. Like, it's like hitting the lottery. Everybody's coming to you looking for loans after that, right? Or or not loans. Yeah, Just, there's that too. Because I mean, let's face it this is this is a fantasy setting. the The only power you have is the power that you possess to keep what you have, right? It's very and you're only true. and you're only fifth level, and there are higher level beings out there that could really use that fifty thousand gold pieces for the things they want to do. Is there not a bank in Waterdeep? There might be. Yeah, I guess maybe there's not. But right? that doesn't mean that you are safe. That's that's true. But I mean, if you have your money in a bank and somebody comes and kills you, they're never getting that money, right? Unless they polymorph to look like you and that, then just walk in and get it. That's true. That's completely true. There's there's all that stuff too. Um, I mean, I'm I'm not going to instantly like just try to kill them every chance I get for their cash. Like I I like the other. I mean, I'll try to kill them probably once or twice, right? But, I was gonna say every every other chance I get. Yeah, but I like the idea that everybody comes begging them for money, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's it's funny because then and there's a lot of cool things that go along with that, right? Yeah, uh, one of them's one of the lord, one of the mass lords of Waterdeep comes and asks for a loan, like an interest free loan, and mm-hmm. if they give it, they'll get a boon. If they don't, they just made an enemy of a mass lord of Waterdeep. That's a terrible yep. idea. That's not good for you, no. 
So like, I, I think that stuff's all really cool. Like, I think it's all a lot of fun. I think it's all fascinating. It is awesome. Yeah. And, I love it. And like the structure of this adventure, it's so loose, mm-hmm. but there's, there's still direction, right? But there's no, like, it's going to end this way. Um, and there's not even any, like the sections are like, they're going to end this way. There's some really cool hard starts, which I'm fine with. I don't mind hard framing things. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as like, then there's a lot of choice after that, like that fireball thing in chapter three, like there's still tons of choice for what kind of happens after that happens. Sure. Like the, in fact, after that fireball thing, the player characters could almost ignore what's going on if they want to. Although we told you 13 different ways, probably not 13, but we told you a couple of different ways to really make that, um, interesting for the player characters to jump into. I remember you saying, Sean, like, oh yeah, that gnome gets blown up right as he's at your door. Right. Like, why was he at your door? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, I think this is a great adventure for, um, for the DMS that like to work from a loose structure and and not, not even do things on the fly. uh, Although you can certainly, you know, improv from it, uh, but like to build their own sorts of encounters and adventures and stories. And it's a, it's a great adventure for DMS like that. Yeah. I will tell you, I think if you were the kind of uh, DM that wants to learn how to DM in this style where it's a little bit looser and you have some options and choices and you're kind of like playing, you're reacting off of the players more so than you normally would be doing. This is a great adventure to learn that Mm -hmm. because um, like Sean said, it's not soup. It's not so loose that it doesn't have a structure to it in some way, shape or form. And there's tons of material there for, for you to utilize to have that sort of back and forth um, play with the player characters and not feel like you're lost and have to make up something completely cold. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's a, it's, it's a really good adventure for that. Agreed. All right. Well, um, I think next week we will, we will do one of these chapters at least um, because some of these chapters beyond this are about the layers. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. I mean, we'll probably just stick with our, our theme, which is the Xanathar one. So we'll probably do okay. the Xanathar one next week. Sure. And then we might be done and then we'll maybe do something else for a week or two. And then we'll start maybe talking about the dungeon of the mad mm-hmm. mage works for me. All right, well, let's do some Patreon shout-outs then. Uh, Dennis Malloy, Blake Ryan, Batman, Brandon Barnes, James Sweetland, Jem Pixelscapes Gange, Kevin Minorzak, the old-school DM, which, by the way, did you see his tarot card? I did. That was incredible. Oh, it's a cr- incredible. The the Mad Wizard Merwin patrons his own show. It's hilarious. Uh, he also patrons the other shows in Mr. Director Mark, which we greatly appreciate. Thanks, Sean. Uh, yes. Troy Sandlin, Will Doyle. Oh, man, Will Doyle's so good at writing stuff, man. He is. Uh, Camden Wright, who's moving to Buffalo. Can't wait to have him here. I think it's going to be on the Mr. Director Mark podcast in the not-too-distant future. Awesome. Uh, Zach Goins, Andrew Dacey, Ovi Waxberg, Chris Constantine, Cindy Moore, uh, Eric Mengi, Eric Simon, Miko Froelich, which I said that terribly on Mr. Director Mark. I call him Frico Moilik. Like, come on, man. Like, I couldn't get his name <laughs> right. It was hilarious. Uh, tabletop Gaming Deals, Victor Wyatt, and Brett Just Brett. And speaking of patrons, if you'd like to be a patron of Down With D&D, you can click on the link to our Patreon page on the website, and for $2 a month, you can get yourself a shout-out. Um, I've been drawing maps lately You'll and releasing them via Patreon. I've been learning that Dyson style of map making. Um, also, I am trying to put out audio earlier to patrons if I can, especially for the Misdirected Mark podcast, because that's the one that I still edit. The Down with D&D one I don't edit, but as soon as I get that audio, I will release it to patrons from now on. Sweet. Or for $4 a month, you not only get a shout-out, you also get to see our pre-production show notes, and you get access to our Slack room for life, where you can come and talk to us about anything gaming-related or otherwise that you want to talk to. 
That's true. It's like the coolest thing. And uh, like we just added a new podcast, which we'll talk about soon. But we put uh, we just added them to the Slack room. And like there's been a lot of really fun conversation lately. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can't help us monetarily, but you want to give us a boost, you can do so with an Apple podcast review. Those help us, even if you're not listening via Apple Podcasts, since many other podcatchers use Apple Podcasts as their way to rate and rank shows. And that would make us more visible. Sean, buddy old pal, where can we find you on the Internet? You can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin or on the Down With D&D G Plus community while it's still there and there's still some fun conversations going on. Or you can hear what the Mad Wizard is doing at Menagerie Wizard. How about you, Chris? Uh, you can hit me up at Misdirected Mark on Twitter. That is the network Twitter. And you can also go to the website. That's a great place to, to catch up with us. And you can catch other great shows such as this one. Uh, the Bonus Experience Podcast. Rye and Monica are two old friends exploring gameplay and design through the lens of diversity while also sharing some of the dumbest humor gaming has to offer. Uh, they love dumb humor. They're wonderful. I, I, I very much enjoy having them as part of the network. And they've, they've jumped right in and become a, a pretty... Uh, a, immediately a pretty uh, uh, integral part of our, uh, our community. Like they're just they're just around talking all the time now. Nice. Down with D and D is a misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. Mm-hmm. What are we going to do now, Mister Madwood? We're going to go kill some monsters. You down with D and D? Yeah, you know me. You down with D and D? Yeah, you know me. You down with D and D? Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D and D? Down with D and D. You down with D and D. I'm down with D and D. Who's down with D and D?